this morning, we're actually going to be looking at uh, the joyful Christian life, and we're actually going to be focusing on um, really two factors of, um, of the Christian life that are what some have called the bedrock of joy, uh, which is humility and unity. So humility and unity uh, within the joyful Christian life is really our focal point this morning. I know Kenny just mentioned this, but we are going through Philippians with the teens this fall um, on Wednesday night, and Really, the title of the series is Marked by Joy, uh, and we're working through basically what joy is, um, what it looks like in our lives, and then especially why joy specifically is to be the distinguishing characteristic of a Christian's life. Um, Now, generally speaking, Philippians is, uh, I guess you could call it a a popular book to whatever extent. Um, It is my personal favorite New Testament book. Uh, Not that I don't like the other ones. It's just, you know, I just like Philippians. Um, And most people enjoy it because, as um, Paul Kent mentions, uh, really of how upbeat Philippians is compared to Paul's other letters. Uh, He has a very sort of energizing, upbeat feel to the letter, which is, again, a little bit unique to some of uh, of Paul's other letters. Many of Paul's letters are addressed to churches that are working through issues. So sometimes we think of like the church in Corinth, like it's a little bit heavier topics. Um, But Philippians is different because it's actually a personal heartfelt um, thank you letter from Paul to the Philippian church. Now, of course, we know the Holy Spirit uh, is the author of the book, but Paul kind of in the scenario the human uh, writer of this uh, inspired book. It's a heartfelt thank you letter from Paul to this specific local church. Now, again, like I said, the theme is joy, but it is important to understand briefly the context of this letter, both from its human author uh, and its audience. Paul wrote this letter. It's one of the, um, the prison epistles. He wrote it while he was in Roman custody in Rome. So he's in jail in Rome, and he's actually under house arrest. So Just needless to say, things aren't really looking great for him. Uh, And on top of that, you look at the Philippian church at this time in church history, and they were a heavily persecuted church. They were also noted in Scripture, in Acts, and other places, um, their extreme poverty. Uh, They were a very poor, poverty-stricken church. Uh, And they did actually have an internal conflict between two influential women that were within the church that the church was actually working through. You see that in chapter 4, verse 2. Now, we just touch on those to understand that despite these serious hardships, both in Paul's life and within the Philippian church in general, Paul throughout this letter communicates, actually prays for this church about their growth and their influence. He talks about their faithfulness, um, but he actually notes their generosity as this outstanding characteristic. You study scripture and church history, and we actually find that Philippians was one of the poorest churches in the first century, and yet it's fascinating that Paul identifies them in chapter 4 as the most generous of any church. So Paul himself expresses worship and contentment in his current hardship. Again, remember, he's writing this from Roman custody in Rome, and he writes about worship and contentment despite that difficulty, and really it's because these difficulties, to whatever extent, um, are creating new and growing opportunities for the gospel to get out. So look at chapter 1, verses 12, uh, 12 and 13. He says, but I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace 
and in all other places. And then you look at 18, kind of a similar sentiment. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein I do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. You look at chapter 4, some of these like noteworthy verses, chapter uh, verses 11 through 13. He says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ with which strengtheneth me. And again, you notice that's not a verse about winning a sporting event. Uh, it's a verse about enduring and contentment through difficulty as God kind of enables that. So really misquoted verse, but a really powerful one if you look at it in context. But again, we look at sort of the beginning and the end of Philippians because we find that Paul's perspective on God's sovereign allowance of these situations actually caused him to praise God. Paul was drawn closer to God through the difficulties that he was facing. Now, we lay that foundation uh, as we move into this because the critical point to understand when diving into the book of Philippians is this— that the concepts of joy, rejoicing, contentment, and peace throughout this letter are always tied to unity with God. Unity with his work, praising him for his sovereignty, uh, pursuing him through his word, following the example of Christ. So pursuing him, pursuing his will, worshiping and praising him in the way that we live and how we serve others. Again, those are the things that scripture ties directly to seeing the spirit produce joy in our lives. I do think it's important as we kind of move into this uh, to make the sort of the difference, understand the difference between happiness and joy, because we kind of sometimes use them like interchangeably, but happiness and joy are very different. Again, to keep it simple, happiness is circumstantial. It's based on a positive experience. When that positive experience is over, happiness leaves with it. Uh, we actually were talking about this on Wednesday with the teens and kind of the same, you know, we need to understand. And so I kind of asked the question, you know, when you guys think about happiness, like what comes to mind? And someone uh, mentioned ice cream. And I thought ice cream is like the perfect example of circumstantial happiness, right? Because uh, happiness, circumstantial, when you have a bowl of ice cream, I mean, I don't know how spiritual this is, but I think we can all agree, you're never really sad while eating ice cream, right? I mean, happiness, it makes you happy. You're eating ice cream, but when does that happiness end? You know, when you hear the, like the, when the spoon hits the bottom of the bowl, you know, ha ice cream gone, happiness gone, right? Um, now, I mentioned it's not wrong to be happy. It doesn't mean, oh, I had a good experience. Oh, I can't be happy. Happiness is circumstantial in nature. Um, but again, so feeling happy it ha isn't wrong, but it isn't consistent by nature. What's important to note as a contrast to joy is that joy itself is constant. In Philippians, it ties to principles of contentment, peace, rest, confidence in God, actually worship of God, fellowship with God, and fellowship with, with his people. So the state of our joy doesn't change because the one in whom it rests doesn't change. So I may not be happy, quote unquote, in the current hardship or struggle that I face, 
But that doesn't mean I cannot be joyful, that I can't be confident in God, that I can't be content or at peace with him and his sovereignty, that I can't look to his word for guidance and wisdom, uh, that I trust him and his spirit's work in my life. I continue to pursue and obey him. But this is exactly what we see in chapter one from Paul. So all that is important to understand because like I said, we're focusing on chapter two and to understand kind of the, the shift that Paul makes in chapter two, you have to understand in chapter one, he's just like, hey, it's, you know, what, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He has this perspective, hey, God is being glorified in my hardship, and that's what I'm celebrating in. That's what I'm drawn to him through. So he lays that foundation in chapter one, and he's trying to push the Philippian church towards that as well. So as Paul turns his attention to what we are going to call the bedrock of joy in the Christian's life, he focuses his energy on two things in chapter two, unity and humility. Unity with God first and humility before God, but we'll find that that humility and uh, unity and humility before God translates directly to unity with his people, with his church, and humility in our service to those within our church. So it ends, he ends chapter one with this exhortation to live for God, to represent him well, even in hardship and persecution. You kind of see that in verses 27 through 30. So the temporal hardships in this life should draw our eyes and our hearts to the eternal work, the eternal rescue and redemption that God has provided on our behalf. Chapter two, again, presents humility and unity and explains practically what they look like in the life of a believer. Some have called, uh, uh, have called chapter 2 of Philippians the heartbeat of Philippians. So if you're looking at Philippians chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, a lot of people call chapter 2 the heartbeat. So when you're talking about joy, the joyful Christian life, chapter 2 is the heartbeat of seeing joy in our life. And it's important to recognize that joy is not so much a thing that we attain to or something that we're like trying to achieve, but it's actually the fruit or the net result of living in unity with God and with his church and doing it in a way that is truly servant-minded and humble. It's a fruit of the Spirit, as you'll note from Galatians 5. It comes only from God, and that's exactly where Paul starts in the beginning of chapter 2. So let's reread uh, uh, verses 1 and 2 of Philippians chapter 2. So looking at all that, then he transitions, "...if there be therefore any consolation in Christ..." If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So this first idea is this unity with God. Uh, Now again, you'll notice in that he says if, and we typically read if as conditional, right? Like if, if this happens, then we'll just kind of adjust and go from there. But it's fascinating and it's important to note that Paul actually uses if in the Greek to introduce what's called a first class conditional clause. Now, maybe that's just jargon, but I just note it because it's important. It's important because the message in this context, he's actually saying if these things are true, and by the way, they are, then this is true. So it's kind of like, I don't know, you, like with, if you have younger kids where you're like, hey, did you, did you mess up the bathroom? Did you make a mess in the bathroom? They're like, um, I don't remember. You know, like, well, if you did, and I know you did, then you need to go clean it up. Go clean it up, right? If, I'm saying if, but I don't mean if, right? So that's kind of the idea. He's saying if there's any consolation in Christ, comfort of love, if, if there's these things, but he's saying 
really because. Because you have these things, then what? Verse 2, then you can be unified. You can be like-minded, one love, one mind, that whole idea. So if these things are really because these things are true, you can be unified together as a church of believers. And I point this out, the principles we're about to talk about, they can apply generally, but it's also critical to understand that this letter was written to a specific body of believers. So the commands that he's getting into, the first connecting point is actually your local church. So again, I'm not saying these principles don't spill out, but looking at the letter, these are commands given or encouragements and exhortations given to a local church. So if you have these things, then you can be unified as a local body of believers. But again, what things does he mention? The first thing he says is consolation in Christ. This means encouragement. It's tangible comfort, counsel, or exhortation. To give just a simple practical example, you think about Luke 10 and the Good Samaritan, right? He saw the guy in pain, he saw the guy in need, and he, he did something to help the guy out. So it's tangible help, tangible comfort or counsel, um, providing someone that's in trouble, pain, or need, and then like doing something about it. So what is it about Christ then that is this consolation? What is it about Christ that encourages us? Well, of course, Jesus Christ is, as we can say, the manifestation of God's redemptive work. We are encouraged, we're comforted, we are at peace because of God's redemptive work. And you talk about salvation, right? The cross and the resurrection. Romans 5 tells us that being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And not just that, but also we have access, right, to his, great hope, his grace, hope, praise, and again, because of Christ. So we're unified with God's work. Our salvation is sealed and settled in Christ, period. The security of his work doesn't change even when our situation does. So again, you see this tie to joy. When my joy rests in God's work, then it can't change because God's redemption of my soul certainly doesn't change. I think we can all say amen to that. Uh, and that's encouraging, right? It should be. Uh, but that's the consolation in Christ. His work on our behalf creates that security, that confidence, that encouragement. We should be encouraged by Christ's work on our behalf. And the next thing he says is comfort of love. The Greek word there, comfort, it literally means uh, word. It's literal words of love and grace shared with someone closely or intimately. And many commentators know this is a direct tie to God's word. Scripture is God's message to us, right? 2 Timothy 3, uh, second, or, yeah, 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1. This is the, the inspired, perfect nature of God's word. It is a message of hope to a condemned world. Romans 5.8, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Without Christ, we have no hope. God's word to us is a message of salvation and redemption because of the reality of judgment and condemnation in our future without his redemptive work. So we are comforted by God's word because it tells us what God has done in our behalf. And not only that, but it continues to help us and guide us to correct us and comfort us in times of hardship and pain. Um, I've got a Bible in my office that I've had probably since middle school. And if you flip through it, there's certain passages that have, um, like, I just wrote, like, the date next to it. And those are just, you know, I say it triggers my brain back to maybe a, a time of loss or pain or difficulty and just a specific passage of Scripture that God used 
in that trial, and sometimes I just would write the date down. And I just I say that as a simple illustration that I think for any really all of us in here, you can look back at your life and see times of difficulty. And many times we'll have like I don't know if you've got like a specific passage when you read it, you're like I remember how this comforted and helped me in a difficult time, or maybe how it gave clarity in a decision when I was, I was seeking God. And then, you know, we think about God's word and not just this comfort that it provides, obviously, in salvation, but then that, that truth continues to seep into our lives in, in times of difficulty or times of need. God's word plays, or at least I put it this way, it should play an active role in our lives every single day and drawing our hearts and our attention back to Christ when everything else is trying to pull it away. We are unified through God's work, what he's done on our behalf. We're unified through God's word, what it communicates to us, and the active role that it plays in our lives and decisions. And then he says, the fellowship of the Spirit. And very simply, this speaks to the active presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's children. You think about John 14 in the book of Acts, where Jesus talks about how the Holy Spirit is in us. So if you've accepted Christ by faith, then you do have the Holy Spirit in you. And not only that, right? And I say the Holy Spirit isn't just there, like, sweet, he's there just hanging out. He's not just there, but it plays a constant and active role in our daily lives. We study Ephesians and find that, it, that the Holy Spirit enables understanding and convicts our heart. Uh, 2 Corinthians and Ephesians as well talks about how the Holy Spirit seals us for our internal, uh, eternal inheritance. Romans 15, uh, that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live holy and to do what's right. 1 Corinthians 12, that the Holy Spirit gifts each believer with unique gifts in order to serve within the body of Christ. Right? Galatians 5, it enables fruitful service. The list goes on and on and on. And we also find in Scripture that we're warned not to grieve or to quench the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. So fellowship or unity with the Spirit means that God is in control of your life, that he is active in your heart, in your mind, and in your choices. Like Ephesians 5, uh, we are commanded, right, not to be filled or controlled by anything except the Holy Spirit. So our unity with the Spirit is, again, you could say active and not passive. We're unified through God's work, we're unified through God's Word, and we're certainly unified by God's Spirit. And that unity with God uh, produces, again, in our lives, he says, bowels and mercies. And again, this is just a reference to like deep affection or sacrificial compassion. Bowels, we think it's a weird, you know, we hear bowels and we think like, Pepto-Bismol. Um, but remember, for them, bowels is like the center of emotion, which if you think about it, actually makes more sense than the heart. Because when you're like super happy, I don't know, remember like maybe on your wedding day or something, you're like, <gasps> you know, but you have the butterflies, you know, uh, or you're nervous, you're, you're sick about something, you feel that emotion, where do you feel it? In your gut, right? So it's the center of emotion, but it's this deep, this deep affection. And then mercies, again, is just sacrificial compassion. Those, these are, of course, qualities that define the redemptive work of Christ, character qualities that we should have for others, but mainly, again, for those within the body of Christ. Don't forget that these principles are being given for the local body of believers. The desire should be 
to feel unified and connected with God's people in your church. But that can only happen if you individually are unified and focused on God's work. Uh, like again, like in Paul with chapter one, God is being magnified in my life and that's exciting. We're unified with God's word and with his spirit. We're seeking Christ through him, through his word and prayer daily. We're asking the Holy Spirit to give us clarity, understanding, growth, uh, to be able to uh, you know, appropriately apply truth into our lives. So again, we take all that, right? Because those things are true. Comfort, uh, comfort, I need to make sure I read them correctly, right? Consolation in Christ, the comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, these attributes of Christ are manifest in our life. Because these things are true, then what? Verse 2. And again, the first connecting point is the local church. Because these things are true, you can be unified as a church, as a local body of believers. But notice that connection and that unity starts with an individual focus and pursuit of unity with God. So it is the individual seeking the love and compassion of the triune God represented in verse 1 to do what only he could have done on our behalf. His work is what drives you towards affection, compassion, connection, and service to and with other believers. And what does that look like? Look at verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others." Just to summarize this, Albert Barnes kind of had this quote of two and three. This command within the church prohibits all attempts to secure anything over others by mere force or numbers or as the result of selfish schemes and plans formed by rivalry. This includes things done by the indulgence of angry passions or with the spirit of ambition. We are not to attempt to do anything merely for outdoing others or by showing that we have more talent, more courage, or more zeal. Uh, instead of, in a sense, creating something out of selfish ambition, Scripture commands us to look to the needs of others and do what we can to meet those needs. Again, notice this is the responsibility of each individual believer within a church community. So each believer making up the local church takes it upon themselves to connect with others, to be knowledgeable and informed about other people's lives, and to see where and how they can meet those needs, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual. Now, to just make that really straightforward... The best way to know how to be a blessing to someone is to take the time to get to know them. I'm going to say that again. The best way to know how to be a blessing to someone is to take the time to get to know them. If you notice, actually, Kenny kind of talked about this last week, the, the principle of friendliness, that accusing a church in a sense of not being friendly is a self-defeating accusation because friendliness is an individual responsibility is kind of the summary. Okay, I need you to take that principle from Kenny. So hear Kenny's voice in your head, transfer it to this, that principle, and look at this passage, the same thing, okay? That principle applies here as well. If you don't feel connected with other believers in your church, then that means you aren't connecting with them. And again, verses three and four lay out the solution. 
Again, it's not about you, is what he says. Be humble enough to see others' needs as more critical than our own. Instead of accusing other believers of not meeting, quote-unquote, your needs, we're supposed to put energy into connecting with others, getting to know others, and seeing how we can serve them and meet their needs. This is exactly what you see in the church in Acts 2 in Jerusalem. As that community of believers grew, people took it upon themselves to initiate fellowship with each other, breaking bread house to house, connecting with each other in their daily lives and in the temple and worship. The solution was not more events on the church calendar. It was individuals taking it upon themselves to connect and to fellowship with other believers, choosing what was best for others instead of their own personal comfort or convenience. And I just kind of asked the question even to myself, how often do we blame everyone else for the things that are due to our own selfishness? And I'm going to just kind of break this down. Instead of saying things like, nobody ever invites me over to their house, or nobody ever invites me out for coffee or lunch, the biblical sentiment would be more, I'd like to get to know that family better, so I'm going to have them over sometime. Or maybe saying, hey, you know, I know that person, he or she is going through a difficult time. Maybe I'll see if they want to do coffee or lunch this week. Now, again, I don't want to get caught on the specific illustration, but I'm just trying to tell you how your perspective totally flips now. You take it upon yourself to connect and serve the needs of others, again, instead of just sitting back and expecting everyone else to serve you. The churches in a country club is kind of the simplest way to put that. Now, we say that, right, and that's all fine and dandy. But if the motive isn't right, it's never going to become effective in producing unity and humility, the bedrock of joy. So those are great, right? But why do we do it? Why do we look to the needs of others? Why do we take it upon ourselves to be examples of humility and conduits of unity within our local church? Before we get distracted in any other direction, Paul immediately directs our attention back to the foundation of our joy Jesus Christ. And you'll notice this connection point of verses 5 through 11. So why do we do it? Let this mind be in you that was first in who? Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of the things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So why do we do it? Paul makes it very clear that the only motive behind the pursuit of true humility and unity in our lives is first falling humbly to our knees in awe of God's love, God's humility, and God's sacrifice to redeem us. This, verse 5 through 11, this is who God is. This is what he has done for you. And then he kind of transitions the point, now do and be that for each other. Love, connect, serve, and sacrifice. Christ is our example, right? Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. 
Unity with God and humility in life was exemplified perfectly in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We pursue unity with God and with God's people because that's what Jesus Christ did. That's what he enabled for his children. Being God, right, Jesus chose to leave heaven to willfully limit himself in human form for a time, to live a perfectly holy life in order to die as a spotless lamb on the cross. For us, he saw our need, right? And he did something about it. In lowliness of mind, Jehovah God, creator and sustainer of the universe, esteemed us in our condemnation and our needs greater than anything else. In order to glorify God and to magnify his, per- his perfect majesty, God looked on our needs and he did something about it. We fiercely fight selfishness in our lives and in our hearts because it does not glorify or exemplify the God that we claim to serve. It teaches the people in our lives inaccurate things about God. So whether our friends, our kids, our family, our coworkers, everyone, lacking unity with God and his people, lacking humility before God and in our relationships only hurts our ability to glorify and magnify God in our lives. And sort of, by the way, (laughs) it makes joy through the Holy Spirit impossible. You remove unity and humility with God, and joy will always leave with them. So Christ is our example, but we ask this question, how do we do it? How do we exemplify his characteristics in our lives and in our relationships, specifically with those in our church and in the world around us? And this is where we jump into verses 12 through 18, because these are important. So look at verse 12. Wherefore, so again, with all that being said, <laughs> my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not, in, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that they may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me." So the first thing we find in verse 12, uh, again, just to keep it simple, is faithful obedience. So how do we, uh, how do we exemplify these characteristics? Uh, first, again, verse 12, faithful obedience. Even as believers, we never lose touch with the reality of our sin nature. We remember that we serve a holy God that does take sin seriously. God makes a clear distinction between right and wrong, holy and unholy, acceptable and un- unacceptable. And if we are, uh, if we are to walk into fellowship or walk in fellowship with Him, we have to understand that and we have to live that. We live to seek out the reality of our salvation each and every day in order to glorify God and to demonstrate his characteristics in our lives. But again, we do it humbly and in reverence, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
Don't ever forget that God does take all sin seriously, and sin can still ruin your life even as a Christian. Just like Paul talks about in Romans 7, our salvation is never a license to sin, but rather that salvation is a motivation to live holy lives of faithful obedience to God. Again, answering the question, how do we do that? And verse 13 is humble dependence. So verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So here's the point. You cannot do this without God, period. Without him, we have zero chance of living a persistent, faithful life of obedience. You think about James 4, for, for instance, it says that our flesh is constantly pulling us away from God, but what? That he gives more grace. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God, right? Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be convicted over your sin, the sin that hinders your growth. And then what does he say in verse 10? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. The desire to do right, to live for God, and the ability to even follow that desire is from God alone. Again, we have zero ability on our own to do this. So humble yourself in fear and trembling at the throne of God and do it every single morning and then, you know, throughout the day as needed. Because <laughs> it always constantly comes up. I think we all feel that. So then look at verses 15 and 16. Uh, we're going to come back to 14. Don't worry. <laughs> Verse 15, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, the gospel truth, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So he pulls back, as we see in verses 15 to 18, we're going to verse 14, don't worry. Uh, this is all done out of a desire to be blameless, to be guiltless, a testimony to the world around us. We want to shine God's glory in every area of life, being faithful to him, faithful to the gospel, because that's the only way, really the only way to live a life that isn't vain and useless. And again, to keep it on theme, the only way to have real joyful, uh, a real joyful life at all is unity with God, unity with his people, and humility before him and in our service to others. So the question, I guess you could look at verse, um, verse 13, like it's God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So how do I know, though, Right? How do I know if God is working in me? Verse 14 very plainly answers that question. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Are you complaining? Are you causing strife and conflict with other believers? And again, just to simplify this, you cannot be complaining and also be under the control of the Holy Spirit. If verse 14 is true, then verse 13 is not. If you're complaining, causing strife, you can't be in unity with God. You look at these two words, right? Murmur and dispute, the murmuring and disputing. Uh, murmuring is, you could say, more private in nature. Disputing is, in a sense, more public. Uh, and murmuring is complaining, uh, but it actually involves verbal attacks either on individuals or groups. You kind of say, what does it sound like? Uh, how come nobody does this or that? No one wants to do that for me. How come they get to be in charge? Uh, you know, all these, all these just statements, right? Uh, it's all murmuring. 
you think about the word murmur, like I know there's words in the English like moist, like just it's just a gross word, or slug, like a, it's like that sounds like what it is. It's just gross. It's a gross word. You think about murmur, murmuring, it's just kind of a, I just wrote, it's an ugly word, murmuring. It's like, and it fits that nasty, backbiting, discontent spirit. I just wrote, it's just gross. It's just, it's just kind of a gross word. And to summarize it, Murmuring is verbal discontentment. It's verbal. When you murmur, it's just verbal discontentment. You're just telling yourself and anyone listening how truly unjoyful we really are. Remember, joy is from God, and you will not have joy if you dedicate any amount of energy at all to murmuring. Again, the same is true for disputing. And this kind of this public, it refers to strife, but it's fascinating. It has this idea of factions or creating factions within the church. It's the creating of factions, either literal, literal, or imaginary. So you think about like a literal faction, maybe you think of the church in Corinth, right? Where in chapter three, he talks about, you know, some of you guys are chapter one through three, really. But, you know, I, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. There's these factions within the church. So it can be literal factions, like I'm just kind of starting my own thing, uh, or we say imaginary. And maybe you've had this happen like at work, or I also wrote, uh, or if you go to like any middle school in America, you see these imaginary factions of people. People basically complaining about there's like a crowd, there's like a cool crowd or an in crowd, and I'm not a part of it. There's this like, this basically this mentality of you're either literally creating factions or you have these within your brain. So the disputing person is someone who can't get it out of their head that no matter where they are or what they're doing, there's always sides or groups. So in the church specifically, you're always going to have different people, different groups, different skills, different personalities. But you have to ask this question, because again, we're in this context, why is it such an offense to God to make those natural variances the source of murmuring or factions and disputing? We look at 1 Corinthians 12, uh, we won't go there, but 12, 12 through 31, and you find that the beauty and strength of the church is actually in our differences, right? It's a body of Christ made up of many members. Our differences functioning together out of a desire to be unified with God and with each other is what makes a church effective, both in their work and in their testimony, right? God has taken these differences and all these people, saves and redeems them, brings them together, but why? And if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25, it says this, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. So you see this principle of unity coming up there. Murmuring and disputing within God's church not only violates the purpose to which God has brought us together as Christians, but again, like we said, even in a scary way, it guarantees that verse 13 is not true in your life. The point of variance to an extent is strength and productivity. The moment that you take those differences in people and begin using them as strife and division, you are in direct conflict with God's purpose and bringing a local body of believers together. So again, if you're not serving and active, the local body of Christ suffers. And again, taking it upon ourselves to be involved and acted and connected in the lives with our, with our people. 
So God, like he says, works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If you are murmuring and disputing, again, you've just told yourself who's in control. It's your flesh and not the spirit. You cannot be humble before God and unified with him, with his work, with his spirit, if you're complaining, period. So you're either under the control of the Holy Spirit or you're complaining. That's kind of the statement there. Uh, So going back to this, right, you're either under the control of the Holy Spirit or you're complaining. As we kind of wrap up and finish up this chapter, recognizing, as we've said, that the bedrock of joy is unity and humility. Unity with God, with his word, with his spirit, and humility before him, always remembering his redeeming work. We're bowing humbly before his throne each day and each moment, realizing that without his grace, you cannot live in faithful obedience. We depend humbly on him to work in us both to desire and to execute his perfect will. This unity, this humility that with God manifests itself directly in our relationships and service with God's people, mainly in our local church. Instead of murmuring and disputing about the things we need or want, we take it upon ourselves to love and serve each other by connecting, talking, serving, sacrificing, sharing, praying, fellowshipping, and worshiping God together. Now to close out the chapter, uh, again, we're just going to look at two thoughts here. He gives two basic real-world examples of this in the lives of two specific men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, we could work through it, but I want you to focus basically on two characteristics or one of each man. If you look at verse 20 of chapter 2, this is Paul talking about Timothy. He says about Timothy, For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Timothy naturally cared for other believers. Timothy loved God and he loved others. God worked in him so that the loving and serving others was as natural to him as breathing, not because of his personality or his disposition, but because of his love and faithfulness to God, because only God can naturally enable Christ-like love for others. And then what does he say about Epaphroditus? Uh, He says a few things, but just look at verse 30. Because for the work of Christ, Epaphroditus was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. Basically, not regarding, regarding his own life in order, in order to serve the needs of others. He is, in a sense, out, uh, the manifestation of Philippians 2.3. He esteemed others better than himself. He looked on the needs of others and not his own. So what does this tell us in conclusion? If you are truly depending on God, then joy is possible. Remember, if you have these things, verse 1, because you have these things, verse 2, in a sense, is possible. If you're truly depending on him, then joy is possible because, as we see in verses 5 through 11, it rests in him, it rests in his work and your heart and life, as we also see in verse 13. If you want joy, you must first seek unity with God and humble yourself before him. And practice humility and unity in your relationships with others, but mainly within your family and church family. Do not murmur against fellow believers and do not be a source or cause of strife and disputes. Love one another as we are commanded to, but especially those in your church family. Recognize that love for your church people is also commanded throughout the New Testament. You study 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Thessalonians 4, and Ephesians 5, among others, you see that command there. But where does it start, right? 
Where does the joyful Christian life find its foundation? Look at verses 1 through 5, right? If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And what does he say? Let this mind be in you, which was also Christ Jesus. Don't ever forget what God has done for you. And this is exactly what Kenny's been talking about the last few weeks, right? In 1 Peter, so great a salvation. How could we not rejoice in what he has done on our behalf? Look to him, follow him, and as James 4 tells us, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let us uh, close in prayer. Father, we love you so much, and we are so grateful for the work that you've done on our behalf. Uh, I pray that you would help us uh, to seek you, to remember that work, to seek unity with you through your word, through the work of your spirit in our lives, um, and that we would love you, remember your example, and never lose sight of the great work of redemption on our behalf. Help us to be uh, humble and unified before you, Lord. But I pray that even as a church, God, for my heart, for each of our hearts, that we would be knitted uh, to you, but drawn closer to you and to each other because of our love and our unity and our humility with you, that the world would see your love, your mercy, um, your holiness, God, as they see our love and sacrifice for each other as a church. Help us to be content, uh, not to murmur, uh, to dispute, Lord, um, but to seek unity and humility by serving others uh, out of a desire to represent the love and service that you have shown to us so often. Again, we love you, Lord. Keep the gospel in front of us. Help us to want faithfulness more more than anything else. In Jesus' name, amen.